Thank you, JT. That was beautiful. That was heavenly, wasn't it? And, uh, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I taught JT how to sing like that. <laughs> and he does a good job with what I taught him. That's beautiful, brother. Beautiful. Praise the Lord. We're going to talk a little bit about heaven today, and that certainly fits well. And uh, for the, those of you online, welcome. I hope the change in the service time was not too inconveniencing. But about this time yesterday, the road, uh, the church street out there on the north, heading north, was still covered. And I know a lot of back roads were too, and the parking lot wasn't as good as it is right now. So uh, that's, the, of course, the purpose behind it all. But we're glad you're here, glad you're watching online. This is the third part in a series on preparing for our journey, a New Year's message. And, uh, it, and it really covers this whole chapter of uh, Philippians chapter 3. And the chapter breaks down naturally like this. If you look at your screen, let me show it to you. Preparing for the journey, uh, the first nine verses, remember and celebrate your salvation. On this journey of ours, don't forget that you've been redeemed by the blood. And singing is a good way to remind you of that singing about your salvation or maybe and what I suggested was every day either in the morning evening or sometime during the day thank thank the Lord for his blood for the cross for your forgiveness and for your salvation don't forget what Christ has done for you and so uh, and then the second part desire and participate in your own sanctification God's not through with us yet he's still working on us molding us and making us and the um, and the number one tool he uses, of course, is his word. So I encourage you to get in the word in some way this year on a regular basis. Church, of course, and Bible studies, but also maybe something personal at home uh, with you, just you and the Lord and the word of God. And then today, we're going to look at this third section, verses 18 through 21. Know and anticipate your glorification. Hey, heavens, heaven that uh, J.T. sang about you and I are going to be there one day. I mean, we're going to see the sights of that city. And uh, we're going to be glorified. We're going to have new bodies. And that's the idea of this last verse here. Now, with that said, look at the text. And then keep your Bibles open. We'll cover those uh, four verses. Look at verse 21. Who shall change, that is, Christ is coming, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for reminding us through JT that there's a real place where people go and we'll see our loved ones again. It'll be glorious, more glorious than we've ever imagined. Thank you for that great truth. Speak to us today. Encourage us on this journey that we are on in this new year. We ask in Christ's name, amen, amen. Dr. David Jeremiah told the story about a, a chaplain in the military who offered a New Testament to a soldier. And uh, it was a you know, small New Testament like you could stick in your pocket. And he said, sure, I'll take it. And it's just the right size to roll cigarettes. So I'll roll my cigarettes with it. The chaplain said, well, I'm giving it to you. He said, before you light up the pages, why don't you read them before you light them up? 
And uh, so he took the Bible. Several months later, he found out this young man had died. And he was processing his, his possessions. And that little Bible was in his possessions. And sure enough, the first many pages were torn out. No doubt he rolled them up with tobacco and smoked them. But the rest of the Bible looked worn. Like it had been read and reread. And then he noticed on the inside of the cover these words, and I'm quoting now. Here is a book which I once despised, then read, and through it found salvation in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? Hebrews chapter 4 says this book, the Bible, is alive. And it's powerful. It's like a sharp two-edged sword cutting into the soul and heart of mankind. Not only is it powerful to bring people to Christ, but it is powerful to continue to transform me and you in our Christian walk, making us more and more like Christ like we talked about last week. So there's one more encouragement for us to get in the Word this year and let the power of that Word transform the way we think, <clears throat> the way we see the world, and the way we live. Now let's go back to the text that's in front of us. That really had to do with that middle section, but we come back to this text and so that we've covered the whole chapter, I'm going to pick it up in verse 18, where he warns again about false teachers. Look at verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There are some people out there who seem like good people and seem like good neighbors, but they are enemies of the cross. And Paul's going to describe those enemies. He tells this now in weeping because his heart breaks for those who are lost. Now from this description, we know that he's not talking about believers who have gotten mixed up in some confusing doctrine or something like that. He's talking about people who are wrong about salvation, how to be saved, how to come to Christ, and therefore... They themselves are lost. He spoke, if you remember, back several weeks ago, he, at the beginning of this chapter, he speaks about false teachers. Now he speaks about them again in a, in a form of a warning again. In those first few verses, he says, beware, be careful about. Well, look at the description in verse 19 of these enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction. So the end of their life will be destruction. The word destruction in the Greek does not mean annihilation. It doesn't mean they'll cease to be somewhere. It means ruin in a continual sense, in an ongoing sense. So they will be somewhere for eternity, and it'll be an ongoing continual ruin. And of course, we know from other passages, that's eternal punishment in hell. And so he's talking about lost people here. Lost people who have religious views. But their religious views are contrary to God's word. So he says their end is destruction. 
whose God is their belly. It's uh, that term, their God is their belly. Most translations will translate the word God there with a little g, which is more appropriate, of course. Remember that in the Greek, there's no small and large caps. Uh, their God is their belly. You know, in, in New Testament times, the, the idea of a heart was kind of like it is now, the seat of your emotion. You might love somebody with all your heart. That doesn't mean that organ in there that's pumping. It means referring to that organ, but it means your, your soul, your spirit, you know. Your seat of your emotions, the heart. Well, the term belly was used for uh, carnal desires, sexual desires that were sinful and wrong. And so here are people who are living in sin and claiming the name of Christ whose end will be destruction. No wonder Paul weeps over this bunch. Though they have some claim on Christianity, they are lost. In, the, um, in a play that was put together about 400 years before the time of Christ, and the people in Philippi would have been very familiar with this play called Cyclops. And it was taken, of course, from the Cyclops from Homer. But in the play, the Cyclops talks about his God being his belly. He says, and I'm quoting now from the play, uh, my flocks, which I have sacrificed for no one but myself and not for the gods, therefore my belly, the greatest of the gods, that is, my belly is the greatest of the gods, for to eat and to drink and to stay out of trouble, this is the God of wise men, end of quote. The Philippians would have been familiar with, with that play. But more importantly, they would have been familiar with the idea and the term of living for your belly, for your sexual appetites, and so forth. And then he says about them, and their glory is their shame. Now there's two possibilities of groups that he's talking about here. He could be talking about the Judaizers, as he talked about in those first verses, who, who put the law of Moses in with the gospel of Christ. And you had to obey the law and be a Jew, be converted to Judaism before you could become a Christian and so forth. And uh, it was a works-based salvation. Or he could be talking about the Epicureans, sometimes libertines they're called, the forerunners to Gnosticism. Their idea of spiritual view of the world was that the body, all matter, is evil and bad. Just the spirit is good. So there was two great schools out of Gnosticism because of that. One school was because the body is evil, just treat the body terribly and torture yourself and beat yourself and, and so forth, as many people did through the years. The other 
school of thought was, since the body's evil anyway, just, just live in evil with your body. But your, your spirit belongs to God. So these folks would indulge in all kinds of immorality of the paganisms of the day and so forth. We don't know which group he's really referring to here. Scholars are divided on which group he's talking about. But we see in either group here, he says their shame is the thing they're glorying in. If this is the, uh, if this is the Judaizers, then what they're glorying in is their own works and their own ability to keep the law. And they should be ashamed of that. Paul said about his own testimony, I counted all of that as waste, dung. They should be ashamed of it. And, uh, and if it's the Epicureans or the uh, Gnostics, they, they believed that wisdom, they had a superior wisdom to everybody else, that wisdom uh, and secret knowledge that they had made them superior, and that's what was going to get them to heaven. Either way, well, Isaiah tells us our righteousness is as filthy rags. So either group, they were glorying either in their wisdom or in their good works. They were glorying in the things they should be ashamed of. And then they not only had it wrong, they had it in total reverse. And then who mind earthly things. Now there's nothing wrong... With my, this is just a phrase, and so you, can't, you don't want to add more to it than there. Minding earthly things doesn't mean you shouldn't go to work and, and live in a home, and a nice home, if you've got the means. And, and it doesn't mean you can't go out and enjoy life. It doesn't, the Bible never pictures a believer as sitting home all day reading his Bible and praying all day long and doing nothing else. No, we're supposed to go out into the world and be a light to the world. And we're supposed to enjoy life. In, uh, in 2 Timothy 6, 17, 1 Timothy, it says, He hath given us all things to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy life. So we've got to take care of the affairs of this life. We've got to go to work. We've got to pay bills. We gotta, we, you got to take vacations. you got to take rest time. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? He said, come apart. When, when they had been working long hours, he said, come apart, away from the crowd and so forth. And it's been said many times that if people don't come apart, they come apart. <laughs> we want to do that first come apart, not the second come apart. And so all of, we're supposed to enjoy life. So what does this mean? They mind the things of the earth or earthly things. Remember here, we're talking about salvation. They, they saw earthly things as their means to salvation. They saw their good works of keeping the law if they were Judaizers. Or they saw their superior wisdoms as Gnostics. And uh, so they... They felt like by doing certain things they could merit God's approval, maybe forgiveness and, and heaven and, and so forth. And so he describes them in these four descriptions. Now we come to the part about 
heaven. Notice he says, verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven. Now that word conversation, if you, if you have a new King James, it'll say citizenship. If you have any other translation, it'll say citizenship. The, the old King James is the only one that has the word conversation there. And uh, the root word means city. So the idea is citizenship, a member of a city. And so what he's saying to the, these first century believers and to, and to you and to me, he's saying our citizenship is in heaven. Now this would have been a particularly uh, colorful way of speaking to the Philippians because Philippi was a colony of Rome. And though it was not in, though it was not in Rome, if you were born in Philippi, you were born a Roman. So you had Roman citizenship, which was extremely important. And uh, gave you prestige and gave you great honor and great responsibility too. So they understood the idea that though they were not in Rome, they were Roman citizens and had privileges regarding that. Paul is saying, we are citizens of heaven. We're not in heaven yet. But we are citizens of heaven, born again. When we're born again down here on earth, then we become a part of heaven, have a citizenship in heaven. They even recorded when, you, uh, uh, when they were born in Philippi, your name was recorded as a citizen of Rome. And of course, the Bible says when we are come to Christ, our name is recorded in heaven in the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen? And so, uh, he says, your citizenship is from heaven. Then he says, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So now he says, we're looking for his second coming. You know, there are, there are over 300 prophecies concerning his first coming. When he came, he fulfilled each one of them. The second coming has 2,100 prophecies regarding the second coming. And when he comes back, he's going to fulfill every one of them as well. He is coming back. Amen? And so we should be looking for. Now notice the, word, the term looking for. It means and can be translated eagerly awaiting. Looking with keen anticipation. Leaning. Leaning in. Like you're looking for a loved one. You know, you get, maybe your loved one you hadn't seen in a good while is coming for Christmas or something like that. And, you're, and they're coming down the driveway or something. I mean, you're just all excited with anticipation. You kind of lean into that situation. It also, in secular Greek, had the idea of standing on your tiptoes. Can you see a, a child looking for mom or dad standing on tiptoes in anticipation? That's the word here. Looking for eagerly awaiting keen anticipation if you and I will look for the Lord this year it'll make a difference in the way we live it will make a difference in the, in the things we do because Jesus is coming back and it could be this year and then it says looking for the Savior and then it gives his full title Lord Jesus Christ that word Lord of course is the word that's used to describe 
the God of the Old Testament when carried over to the New Testament. It's a statement of deity. Verse 21. Who shall change our vile bodies? Now the word change there in the Greek means a change from the, from the outside of ourselves. Something exterior changing us. Who is who or what is that something? Well, it's the Lord Jesus himself. Look back at it again. It says, we're looking for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall, that is who, Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies. It'll not be the Father, the Holy Spirit. This is going to be the Lord Jesus. He is going to change our vile bodies to make them like unto his glorious body. Well, that'll be good, won't it? What does vile body mean. Now, when we use the word vile, we normally think of something that's sinful, dirty, and so forth. The word here means low. It means humble. If you've got a, if you've got a newer translation you, that you're looking at right now, it probably says body of our humiliation. Compared to the glorified body, what we've got now is a lower body. We've got a body of humiliation. We fall into sin with this body. This body gets sick. It gets old. It gets weak. Eventually, this body will wear completely out. And we, who we really are, our soul and spirit, we will leave this body. So in that sense, it's a body of humiliation. Not vile, but of humiliation. So it's right and good to be thankful for our bodies. It's the only one we've got down here on earth. We'll have a new one one day, but it's the only one we've got. So take care of yourself and uh, take care of that body, that gift that God's given you. So it's not vile or sinful, though we do sin in the body, but the body itself is just a body of humiliation. But that new body will be glorious. Notice the next to the phrase, uh, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Remember the body he had after the resurrection? He could walk into a room without opening the door. And he could also say, touch me. And they could touch him and feel he was, he was uh, bone and, and flesh. But there was no blood. He had shed his blood on the cross. Uh, blood, of course, in this physical body we're in now, you have to have blood. That's the life, you know, that's life-giving flowing through our veins. But Something else will be life-giving and flowing through our veins in that new glorified body, the power of Christ. And so we'll have a body likened to his glorified body. We won't get tired. We won't get sick. It'll never wear out. Amen? I know those of us who are on up in some years, that's a pretty encouraging thing to have a body like that. And we'll have one one day. And then it says, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. This is a beautiful phrase. I guess Paul knew, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul knew that people maybe would think, how, how is that going to happen? Some people's bodies are going to be in the, the ground for years and years and centuries and centuries and millenniums. How is he going to make a new body out of that old body. And so this is his answer. According to the working. See the word working there? That's the word for power. According to his power. Notice what he's able to do. According to his 
power whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The word subdue is a military word. It was used of a general that told all of his troops what to do and they had to do exactly what they had to do. He put them in order and they were all in order and, uh, and this general told everyone their place and what they had to do. But now this is speaking of the sovereign of the universe. He's the one who created the natural law. And he's the one who can subdue that natural law under his power. So of course it's not natural that he can take in ashes or dust from an old body and put it back together. But since he's God, since he can subdue all things unto himself, then he can do that. That's Paul's meaning here. According to his power, he can subdue all things to himself. Isn't this a glorious passage of Scripture? Now, I want us to think for a minute, when is this glorification going to take place? I want us to think about prophecy for just a moment. I said to you earlier, 2,100 passages in the Bible verses concerning the second coming. I want you to look at this uh, outline of prophecy I put together for you. And I'll explain it as you go. You see the cross there. So we, we start this timeline. This is a timeline. And it starts at the cross. Coming from the cross, we have the church age. And then that church age is going to last about 2,000 years. We're right there. We're right there, there at that time now. And the book of Revelation covers the church age in verses 2 and 3. Now, after the church age comes the rapture. It says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven, and then we who are alive shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So one arrow coming down, one arrow going up, and we have a meeting in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the next thing on the prophetic calendar. It could happen today. It could happen before the service is over. It could happen before we lay our heads down on our pillows tonight. There's no signs that have to come before it. There's nothing to be fulfilled. Christians for all generations have been looking for that rapture. Well, after the rapture, then you have the tribulation period. It's going to last seven years. And uh, chapters 4 through 19 of the book of Revelation cover the tribulation period. Half of it, the, the last half, is called the Great Tribulation. It's going to last 1,260 days, the Bible tells us, the exact days. 42 months, it says, and two other places in the book of Revelation. At the end of the Tribulation, then we have the second coming. Jesus is coming all the way back to earth to set up his millennial kingdom. And he'll come in great glory. And, <coughs> excuse me, that brings us to the millennial kingdom. The word millennium simply means a thousand. We know this, is, this kingdom is going to last a thousand years on earth. And the, a lot of those 2100 prophecies are concerning the millennial kingdom. <clears throat> so it will last a thousand years and it's covered in chapter 20 in the book of Revelation. Excuse me a minute. Now, at the end of the millennial kingdom will begin eternity. That's described for us in chapters 21 and 22. And then one more thing 
I'm going to insert right between those two because I didn't really have room to put it in there before. And that is the new heaven and the new earth. Chapter 21 tells us about that. Peter elaborates on it. Now, the rapture is what's coming next. Now, something that's associated with the rapture in the New Testament is the judgment seat of Christ. Where does the judgment seat of Christ fit into this prophecy? Uh, look at it right here. Judgment seat of Christ takes place right after the rapture. We know that because uh, Jesus is coming back with the church, bringing the church with him when he comes back in the Revelation. So all of that's already taken place sometime in that seven years. But most scholars feel like it's right after the rapture, immediately after the rapture, and it'll take place in the air. We will be with the Lord in the air at the judgment seat of Christ. The scripture says, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. This is reward. And so it takes place there. Now there's, a, there's several other judgments, but the other major judgment is the white throne judgment. And that's going to take place right there at the end of the millennial kingdom. Everybody in the, that first one, judgment seat of Christ, will be saved. Everybody in that last one will be the lost of humanity. Now with that said, that quick overview, let's look at some verses concerning these these issues. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then if you and I are alive when Jesus comes, this verse speaks to us, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. From that time on, from the rapture uh, through the rest of eternity, we will be right there with Christ. And, uh, and then, you know, sometimes you hear people say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's true that the English word rapture is not in the Bible. But if you look right here at this term, caught up, that word in, uh, in Latin is rapturo. It's where we get our word rapture. So the Bible for many, many years was in Latin, and if you had read the Latin version, you would read right here the word raptura. And so it could be translated rapture right here, these words. If you, look, if you look the English word rapture up in a dictionary, you'll see that it means uh, excitement and joy, and, and then it has a secondary definition to be caught up or taken. Back in secular uh, Greek, the word used here, by the way, was used of kidnapping, to be snatched away, to be kidnapped. There's a sense in when that you and I are going to be kidnapped. <laughs> We're going to be snatched up, caught up, to meet the Lord in the air. That's the phrase right there, rapture. And then uh, here it says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep there is a euphemism for death. Not everybody's going to die before Jesus comes. Some will be alive. One generation will be alive. It could be ours. It could be us. Uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There's that idea of changed again. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, uh, in the twinkling of an eye, according to Western Electric, is 11 hundredths of a second. 
less than a quarter of a second. We're going to be changed that quickly. Look, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed, caught up. And uh, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we, the ones who are alive, shall be changed. That is, we'll have that new glorified body. Amen? And then, here's a couple of verses on the... Um, Judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now this is for believers. This is not a judgment to see if you get into heaven or not. Everybody that belongs to Christ is going to heaven. But the we there, Paul is including himself. We means, Paul is saying, me and all believers. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be rewarded for things that are good and we'll suffer loss because of things that are bad. The word bad there doesn't mean evil in the normal sense. The word bad there means worthless, wasted. Some people are wasting their Christian lives and at the judgment seat of Christ they'll have to answer for a wasted life. Whether it things be good or whether they be bad. And then again here, but why dost thou judge thy brother or why dost thou set it naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, <clears throat> there are many places in the New Testament talk about rewards, but I want to look at the five crowns just real quickly. I'm just going to flip through these. They give us kind of a general idea of the uh, rewards that people will receive at the judgment seat of Christ. Look at them with me. The five crowns. The first one is the incorruptible crown for those who live victoriously. We all have a chance to win that crown in heaven. And then you have the crown of rejoicing for those who witness faithfully with their words and with their life. Sometimes this is called the soul winner's crown. Uh, maybe you've influenced people to come to Christ. You may not even know that some came to Christ till you get to heaven. This is those who witness faithfully. And then there is the uh, crown of righteousness for those who love His appearing, for those who are standing on tiptoe. And uh, every time they wake up in the morning, they're wondering, this could be the day. I wonder if this will be the day. Those that love His appearing, a special crown for those. And then a crown of life for those who endure trials. Now, that doesn't just mean you go through trials. Endure is a compound word. It means to remain under with the right attitude. You're under the burden of this big trial, but you're under it with the right attitude. We all endure trials in the sense that we go through them and we live through them, but, but do we have the right attitude? This is for... You, you've seen people, and I have too... They've got more burdens, more trials, and you don't know how in the world they stay sane. And they've still got that sweet spirit about them, loving Jesus, trusting Jesus. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. This crown is for them. And it can be for me and you as well. And then the last one, number five, is for the faithful pastor. And so we have these five crowns. Now, picture with me that, that term, judgment seat, is not... That word judgment is not the word that's used normally for punishment, judgment, judgment of sin. It's the word in the Greek, bima. And the word bima was used in athletic events. 
And so the judgment seat of Christ, or as it's called much of the time, the bema seat of Christ, will be rewarding like in an athletic event, the ones who have won the, the crowns. By the way, the word crowns that we've looked at are the Greek word uh, uh, stenophanous, which means a laurel crown like an athlete used. Diadem is a crown that a king would wear, and that's the crown that Jesus wears when he comes back in the second coming in Revelation chapter 20. And so this uh, Stophanos crowns, we, uh, uh, we, we gather like gathering at a, after an athletic event. Think of it like this, the Olympics. Think of the Olympics. And at the end, all the participants are all gathered together in a great crowd. Now, this crowd will be much bigger than that, but picture it in your mind, a great crowd. And let's say the medals were not handed out till the end, and here they all are together, and the, uh, the person in charge, and of course at the judgment seat, it'll be Christ himself, and he will pass out the medals or the crowns and all the other rewards. Now, this is not all the rewards. The Bible talks about a lot of rewards. Jesus said you won't lose your reward if you give a, if you give a drink of water to a thirsty child in the name of Jesus. You won't lose that reward. So there's, there's many, many rewards. People will be rewarded in that big old crowd at the judgment seat of Christ. Some people will realize their life was pretty much wasted when it comes to serving Christ. So much so that John said in... In 1 John 2.28, he said, Abide in him, abide in Christ, that you might have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Some people in that crowd are going to be ashamed. They didn't give regularly. They didn't serve. They were not faithful. They didn't really put much effort into growing. They just drifted through their Christian life. Some people there will be ashamed at this judgment seat of Christ. Gypsy Smith was a great character in church history. He was born in a tent in the forest. He, was a, he truly was a gypsy. That wasn't a nickname. He was a gypsy. He was born in Edding Forest, in the forest, in a tent. He was one of six children. His daddy was a drunkard and a fighter, a brawler, and he was in jail a lot of the time when he was growing up. But when, when, uh, when Gypsy Smith was 16 years old, his daddy got saved. And his life turned around completely. He was transformed, and one of his brothers, which would have been Gypsy Smith's uncle, was transformed as well. And that made a great impression and uh, so at the age of 16, Gypsy Smith gave his heart to Christ as well. His life was changed. He, all he wanted to do was serve the Lord. He had never been to school a day in his life. But he taught himself how to sing songs. And he had the nickname of the, the, the singing Gypsy Boy. And uh, then he taught himself how to read and how to write. He'd never been to school. He taught himself this after the age of 16. And then he, for 70 years, 
I wish I could tell you more detail, but for 70 years he traveled and preached in the U.S. and in Europe and in many places in the world for 70 years. He drew crowds of 10,000 people to hear him come preach. Over those years, he drew crowds together of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people to come hear him preach, and people got saved. He was Gypsy Smith, as he was called. I said all that to say this. He had something he said often when he was preaching. He said, and I quote, I live every day in light of that one day at the judgment seat of Christ. He lived in anticipation like this passage is talking about. He lived knowing he was going to have to answer for the way he lived to his master. I live every day in light of that one day at the judgment seat of Christ. I heard Dr. Fred Brown say one time when I was in Bible college, wouldn't it be something if at the judgment seat of Christ the Lord showed us what we could have been? What we could have been if we had followed God's will and trusted Him and, and, and given like we should give and served Him as we should serve and got into the Word like we should... Think of what we could have been. He said he thought that would be the, the worst thing possible at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we've got you here and you don't have anywhere to go after this, do you? So, I'm going to show you a little video. It's only a minute and a half. Jesus is coming. The rapture is going to take place. People are going to disappear in the twinkling of an eye, 11 one-hundredths of a second. They're just going to disappear because they're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Be sure you're ready. Be sure you're not left behind. Be sure you've trusted Christ and Christ alone as your Savior and as your Lord. Let's watch this little video.
bow with me, please? With their heads bowed, maybe you'd say, Preacher, I know I'm saved, and I have no doubt about that. I'm ready in that sense. But I want you to pray for me because I want to hear the Lord say, Well done at that judgment seat. Maybe win a crown so I can throw the crowns back at his feet, which is what Scripture says will happen. And you'd say, pray for me because I want my life to count for Christ. And from this day on, I'm making a new and a fresh commitment to him, to his service, to his kingdom, to his will and plan in my life. That's my heart's desire. Pray for me. Would you, that's your desire. Would you raise your hands? Yes. All over the building. You may put them down. God bless you, each one. I wonder how many would say this. Preacher, I'm not saved. I'm just not sure. If Jesus came today, I don't know if I'd be taken or not. Pray for me. No one will come to you or embarrass you. Let us just pray for you. Would you slip your hand up? I'm just not sure. I'm not saved or not sure. Anyone? All right, Father, thank you for our time together in your eternal word. One day, one day, that snatching away, that kidnapping is going to take place in the twinkling of an eye. May everyone here and may everyone listening to my voice online, may they be sure, may they get alone with you and call on you to be their Lord and Savior and Master, believing that you paid the price on Calvary's cross and rose again. Grant it, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, if you would, please.